let's turn to James 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. That's the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Verse 1, my brother says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who loved him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who read, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not being merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May the Lord add his blessing in the reading of this portion of Scripture, even to our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Father, we come before you once again to praise your name. And we come before you, Father, and thank you for the word of God, which is a blessing to every heart who will believe it. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who can increase our faith in such a way that we can grow in grace and knowledge without fear and without doubts, because we know that you are with us to bless us with your presence and with your power. And every need, we know that you are there. And so we pray, Father, for your watch care over our hearts, even this morning as we gather here to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we come before you this morning to be blessed in your presence and in your word. And we pray, Father, that we have hearts that are very receptive this morning, that we might hear your word and obey it. We thank you, Father, that you've called us out of darkness into this marvelous light whereby we can see the face of God in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, for your blessing upon us and upon our pastor. He brings the message this morning. Use him for your glory even in coming days. And bless him even as he travels. And bless Jane as she's in that uh, problem of health. And we just pray, Father, that you would overrule in all things. That our pastor and Jane might be blessed in a marvelous way in coming days. And so we pray for a great moving of your Holy Spirit over them and us, Lord, as we pray for them. That we might know what it is to walk in the light. As you give us light in all things. And answer us in all problems and meet our needs in all needs. We thank you, Father, that you are there to bless your church family in every way. Whether it's gathering here or gathering somewhere else or across the world today, we pray for a great moving of the Holy Spirit across your church, the body of Christ, which is looking forward to the great day of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. And so we would ever give you much praise, Father, as we see the world in trials and troubles rioting, fighting, killing. And we just noticed, Lord, that you have said, lift up your heads. When you see these things just beginning to come to pass because you know your Lord is at the door. So bless us, Father. Bless your church family here. Bless each heart here. Bless each need that we all have. And use us for your glory, striving together for the gospel's sake in this place, that Jesus Christ may be praised uplifted, and others see him whom to know is that wonderful life eternal. And so we pray, Father, for our church family and every need, our leadership, these new ones who just come in, Father, who have been with us and now belong to us. What a difference. So we pray for each one. 
Put your hand upon them, Lord, the young and older alike, that you will lead them into a life that is a blessing to themselves and to others. Give them that notice of watch care, for that evil one is going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So bless these new ones and bless our hearts today. Bless our missionaries, Father, in the foreign field. Some on the home front, some on the foreign field. We praise you for them and pray for them, Father. You know their needs and their circumstances. Bless them where they are. Perhaps some in danger. Perhaps some not well. And we pray, Father, for them. We pray for our missionaries who have gone out to the far-flung foreign fields to serve you in such a way that they bring glory to your name. Bless us, Father, as we gather together this morning. Use us in our worship service. Even as we have fellowship later, we pray, Father, for that fellowship be sweet and kind one to another, as you would have us to do. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to the Lord one more time together in prayer. Sovereign God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you that your mercy has been extended and your mercy abounds into our lives even today, even as we sit here. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, I pray that you will help us to remember that we were once under judgment. But Lord, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to overcome judgment in our own lives against others. And that we would pour out mercy on other people, Lord as those who have received mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine has a tape measure. Now, that might not be any big deal. Probably most of you have tape measures too, but this isn't any ordinary tape measure. This is an expensive Stanley tape measure, and it's got really good action. The tensile strength of the tape itself is excellent. The, the buttons move, it moves smoothly. So this is a really nice tape measure. But there's a problem with this tape measure. You see, the first two inches of this tape measure have been broken off, and my friend actually re reattached the little hook that you used to, to hang over your piece of lumber. And so this tape measure, even though it is it is a really nice tape measure if he doesn't take into consideration that those first two inches are gone every measurement that he does is going to be inaccurate not to mention the fact that it's got a sharp edge that you can actually easily cut yourself on as well but 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 that tape measure even though it looks nice doesn't work and so many of us are going around as well with a broken tape measure, measuring everything around us, but our tape measure is broken. We have the wrong standard. We have the wrong standard. So we need to not, not judge my friend with his tape measure too harshly because we are doing exactly the same thing. We don't want to throw out our tape measure because we're comfortable with it. Because it works for us. And because quite often the measure, measurements that we make are actually made in our favor. But we have to throw out that tape measure and instead get a new tape measure, an accurate tape measure. And that measure is God's word. So if you might be wondering how on earth this fits in with James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. But if you look at this passage, again and again, we see the word judge partiality, making decisions, being people being brought before court, being convicted by the law, showing favoritism. 
there's a theme here of wrong judgment. So what James is addressing here is people who are judging wrongly. They're judging based on social status, not based on God's standard. They were giving the people who were wealthy preferential treatment. They were telling the wealthy people who came into the church, here, have this this beautiful, and nobody wants to sit in the nicest seat here. It's right there. Nobody wants to sit in, in those seats, but in those places they were offering up the best seats to the wealthy people while they're telling the poor people, you can go and stand over there or you can sit down here by my feet. And so by judging wrongly, they were themselves judged by God. Their sinful standards, their sinful judgment put them under God's judgment. Instead, they should have judged rightly and shown mercy in the way that God shows mercy. So in failing to do this, they were failing to practice the pure and undefiled religion that James was talking about back in verses in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. They were failing to show mercy because of their wrong judgment. So let me explain one more time. James is saying that it is wrong to judge by outward appearances. In this case, it was those who were judging those as, as more honorable because they were wealthy and those as less honorable because they were poor. But remember that God had mercy on the poor. It's those wealthy people that were actually wrongly judging the poor Christians there in the church themselves. It didn't make any sense. It should not have made any sense that they would be judging those people who were oppressing them. Remember that this letter was written to the diaspora. These were the, the exiled Jewish Christians who were, because of the persecution, spread over the Middle East. And so they're honoring the very people who were judging them. And James says that if we judge in this way, we ourselves are being brought under judgment by God's law. And so as those who have received mercy, we too are to extend mercy. So I can sum up my sermon by essentially saying this. When you judge someone with unrighteous judgment, you are breaking God's law and come under God's judgment. Now I have five points for my sermon, and, and if you're scared of five points, usually there's three. It's not gonna, they're not, essentially not really long points. But, but the first one is in verses 1 to 4. It says, James' indictment on the church. You judge the poor. And then in verse 5, God has mercy on the poor. And verses 6 and 7, the rich judge you, but God's law judges the rich. And then in verses 8 to 11, God's law judges you. And then in verses 12 and 13, God has mercy on you, so you should have mercy. So first point, you judge the poor. Verses 1 to 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in this passage, James, is, James is, is confronting the church for the sin of partiality. Now the Greek word here is translated partiality in the ESV or favoritism in the NIV. It actually means in the Greek to receive the face of someone. To receive the face of someone. It's to accept his external appearance as the real thing and then to make an evaluation based on that external appearance. So they were judging the wealthy as more honorable and were then treating them as such and judging the poor as being less honorable and also treating them accordingly. So we need to think here that at best, at best their judgment was shallow. At best it was shallow. But James says that what they're doing is actually far worse than that because they are making themselves judges with evil thoughts. But some might be tempted to say, well, what's the big deal? You know, we're still letting the poor people in. We're not barring the door and not letting them in. We're just not giving them the good seats. But as we'll see, the, it's God's law that they were transgressing 
because God's law pointed to what was happening in their hearts. By judging in this way, they were committing very grievous sin. I want to ask you the question, how do you think these people would have responded had Jesus walked into their midst? Remember, these, these people were used to judging by the external. They thought that, that somebody came walking in all proud and well-dressed was more honorable. But we read of, of Jesus, the Messiah, in Isaiah 53, 2, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And in Philippians 2.7, we see that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And we saw that, that played out. We talked about this in communion last week. As Jesus took on, he didn't just take on the form of a servant, he became a servant and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. So he made himself the lowest form of a servant, even serving to the point of giving his life. But nonetheless, the king would come. The king would come in Zechariah 9, 9, humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And Jesus fulfilled that on Palm Sunday when he, when he, came, in, when he came in to the city, mounted on a donkey, and the people shouted for that brief instant, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then those very people were the same ones Shortly thereafter, we're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So I don't believe that if Jesus had to come into that church, that they really would have recognized him because they were looking on the external. They were judging by the wrong standard. So look back here at verse 1 again. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So their focus on the, on the external caused them to fail to see the spiritual and the real and the internal. And it caused them to fail to see the Lord of glory. You see, when you get a picture of the Lord of glory, as, as Dave talked to us about a couple of weeks ago, when you have a vision of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as he is presented in Scripture then all the small distinctions that we see between other people cease to be important. They cease to be important. Now, I'm not talking here about ignoring sin. I'm talking about the superficial ways that we tend to judge other people, especially as this church was doing in judging them based on their wealth or their apparent wealth. We are to use Christ alone as the measure of our comparison. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul warns, saying, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So the standard of measurement is Jesus Christ as revealed to us in his word. So the question has to be asked then, I wonder that if Jesus himself were to walk into this room, would we recognize him? And I believe most of us would. I believe that most of us are training ourselves to look on the internal, to look at the spiritual, and to see what God is doing in the person's heart. But we all tend to judge from time to time for superficial reasons. We might, make, might not make our judgment based on, on someone's apparent wealth or the social status, but how do we make our judgments? A couple of weeks ago, just before the service, there was, was a homeless guy walking down the street just before the, the church service. With, now, he was, was, I believe, sober as I, as I talked with him, but he was there pushing his, his shopping cart full of, of all of his, his worldly possessions. And... You know, if it wasn't for Christ in me, I, I would have thought, well, you know, maybe we don't want that guy here. He's probably a little bit smelly. But, but I thought about, about wanting to welcome him into our midst. And, and he, didn't, he didn't take me up on, on, the, on the invitation, but he was very encouraged by it. He, said, he did say, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit smelly. And I said, well, look, you know, you can, you can come. You can have a shower at my place. He said, well, I'm a bit hungry. And I said, well, you know, we'll have food directly after the service. 
but he was just making excuses because I believe he knew that he was going to come, hopefully would have come under conviction for his sin if he had, if he had come in here. But we might not make judgment based on, on social status, but we still have a, have a tendency to judge people for the way that they dress. Now, now, I am not in any way here suggesting an anything goes attitude. In fact, I like the fact that we dress up a little bit on Sundays. I like the fact that when we, that we don't treat Sunday as just any other day, that we confess that when we're coming here, that something special is happening here. That I don't just put on a t-shirt and flip-flops and just, and just come on over here like, like, there's, like it's just any other day or like this is just any other gathering. This is something special that goes on here, so we do want to dress up a little bit. But I know of a situation that, that happened in this church several years ago where there was an individual who, who came into this church and, and he was, was actually going to be going to be sharing some about his ministry from the pulpit. Now, this is not a wealthy guy. But as soon as he walked in, one of the, the individuals from the church who no longer attends here, has not come for quite some time, buttonholed him at those doors and, and rebuked him because he was wearing jeans. Now, if he was coming to share... You know, he, 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 he wasn't, he, those were his nice jeans. He couldn't afford to have, have a suit. And so he felt incredibly unwelcome and dishonored by that individual. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Now, again, I'm not talking here about cool Christianity. Okay, I, I am strongly opposed to cool Christianity. And the way that, that some people in some churches will, will almost flaunt their freedom. And they'll come into church looking just like the world. Looking just like the world. And what they're really doing when they say that is they're, they're not showing, I believe, not showing respect for the Lord. And they're not showing respect for those who come from a different cultural milieu and, and are offended by that. So the law needs to be the law of love. The law needs to be the law of love. But these people here that James was addressing, these were, were poor people. They did not have the fine clothing that, that the rich people had. And they were being judged for it. They were being judged for it, and they were being judged by the very people that really weren't much better off than they were themselves. Now, a, a close friend of mine has, has tattoos. And you might look at him, if he's in his shirt sleeves, you might say, well, wow, he's a really worldly guy. Look at those tattoos. But talk to him for about 30 seconds and you will see that he is one of the most godly and conservative men that you are ever going to meet. You see, he got those tattoos many years ago as an unbeliever. He got those tattoos at a time when he did not know Christ. And he doesn't have the money to pay for the surgery to have them removed. But if you were to judge him based on the externals, you could see him as a worldly person. Now, I, there's, there's a lot of people, again, this is tied with the whole cool Christianity thing, that, that have, have tattoos all over themselves. They're saying, saying Jesus and, and things like that. Now, again, this isn't in the text, this is, and this is, this is my personal opinion, but, but I really believe that, that getting tattoos like that, even ones that say Jesus, is a patterning yourself after the world. And is wrong. And now in Leviticus it talks about um, about making markings in the flesh, but you have to look in the context. That's not expressly talking about tattoos. But I think the issue that is involved here is that when you get tattoos, what you're really saying is, "This is my body. This is my flesh, and I can do what I want with my flesh." But it's not your body. 
It's not your flesh. You do not own one cell in your body. It was given to you by God to glorify Him. So we need to consider whether whether what I'm doing with, with my body, whatever it is, whether we drink or eat or whatever we do, it's to glory in God. It's not to pattern ourselves after the world. But maybe you, you don't make your, your judgment based on how somebody looks externally. Maybe you make your judgment based on your idea of doctrinal orthodoxy. So long as somebody ticks your theological boxes, you view them as solid. And I know I've fallen into this this sin myself. But don't get me wrong here, doctrinal orthodoxy is essential. It's essential. And if somebody is theologically out to lunch, it's probably going to reflect itself in other areas of their life as well. But we need to remember that, that the truth that we, have that we believe we have received from God. You are not any smarter, any better than, any than anybody else that enabled you to believe something while others didn't. It's because of God's grace poured out on us that we believe anything that is true. So again, that should cause us to be merciful. Because there were times when, when I didn't have all my theological ducks in a row, to mix a metaphor. There were times when I didn't believe a lot of right beliefs. But, but God has worked in my heart and enabled me to believe more truth today than I did five years ago or even one year ago. We need to be very careful that we don't judge somebody on an outward appearance of having solid doctrinal beliefs. Remember, it's not enough to be a hearer or even a preacher of the word. We also need to be doers of the word. I know of some very popular preachers in the U.S. who preach sound doctrine. They preach the truth. They get the gospel right. But there's other things that they do and say that deny the gospel. They proclaim things even from the pulpit that are vile. They're vile. They're not being doers of the word. So we need to be very careful because, because we, we can judge on these external things. And I'm being... I'm, I'm just conscious of this in my own life. I need to be so careful that I stand up here and preach the truth, but also that my life bears out the truth. And again, I'm asking you to pray for me that I would obey God in the way that I live my life. That I would back up what I say by what I do, by God's grace in me. But maybe we judge others for their behavior. Now again, I'm not talking about judging people for things that are expressly sinful. We are called to judge for those reasons. But we need to be very careful that we're judging for the right reasons, judging for the measures that, that Scripture talks about, especially in the church. In 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And in 1 Corinthians 5.11-13, to Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for their failure to judge. They were boasting in their so-called open-mindedness because they were allowing somebody in their midst who was committing shameful sin. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5, to 13, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a valor or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among, among you. But again, we need to ask the question, does our standard of judgment... Does our standard of judgment come from God's word or from our cultural presuppositions? We don't know necessarily what is going on in somebody else's heart, so we need to be very, very careful in making judgments. Yes, if you see bad fruit coming out in the person's life again and again, it's right to make those judgments. We just saw that, especially in the church. Especially in the church. But the problem is not judging, it's judging by the wrong standard. It's judging by the wrong standard. 
In John 8, 15, when Jesus was being wrongly judged by the Pharisees, he said to them, you judge according to the flesh, or you judge according to the appearance, appearance, some translations say, but I judge no one. Now, of course, Jesus does judge, but he's saying that he does not judge in that sense. Jesus is coming back to judge the world for every wicked deed that has not been put under his blood. But he does not judge by the appearance. So if we want to be like Jesus, we also will not judge by the appearance. We will not show partiality for any reason. In fact, Jesus expressly commanded against that form of judging. He said in John 7, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So how do we judge by right judgment? By the right standard of judgment. By God's word, we judge how God judges. So how does God judge? Look at verse 5. God has mercy on the poor. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, God has not chosen, has not God chosen the, who, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So God shows no partiality, whether it's, whether it's in, the, in the case of being rich or poor, as in our passage, or Jewish or Gentile in, to, in Romans 2.11, or slave or master in Ephesians 6.9, for God is a righteous judge, Colossians 2.25. God never shows partiality. In Hebrew, the word that's translated uh, partiality literally means the lifting up of the face of a person, very similar to the way that it's, it's translated in the Greek. Lifting up the face, judging according to the appearance. For the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18 is never, is never partial. God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now remember, we saw that last week from, from verse 27. That those who are truly the children of God will begin increasingly to look like their father. They will grow in Christ-likeness. They're going to be changing and showing more and more mercy because of the spirit that is at work in them. So if we look at somebody with abundant wealth, we might secretly envy them and and consider that, that God is actually blessing them. But we need to ask the question here, is somebody with abundant wealth necessarily being blessed? We see in this passage that it's God who determines where real value lies. So if we want to judge Rightly, we'll look at what God has to say about the issue. And when it comes to this issue of wealth, God has a lot to say on the issue. I could preach many sermons on passages that deal with, with, with wealth and finances. The world says that the wealthy are to be esteemed above others and that wealth is something that we are to aim for. But God's word says otherwise. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In fact, not only does wealth lack any eternal benefit, but God also warns against the danger of accumulated wealth. Of wealth. Jesus said in Luke 18 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, or it's also translated than for one who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Riches most often are a distraction. They're a distraction that keep us from pursuing God. Now last week I explained to you that the social gospel is no gospel. This week, I want to remind you that the prosperity gospel is no gospel either. This heresy tries to tell us that, the, that, measure, that wealth is the measure of God's favor and that therefore we should seek to be wealthy. The prosperity gospel says that if you are not wealthy and blessed with, with health, then there, you don't have enough faith that God is withholding blessing on, from you. 
But God's word tells us instead in 1 Timothy 6 to be content with food and clothing. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through that craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So instead of exalting the wealthy, God cares for the poor. And likewise, if we want to be like God, we also should care for the poor. In his sovereign plan, he is determined that some would have wealth in this life and that others would have very little in this life. In fact, God has determined in his sovereign plan that the vast, vast majority of the people on this planet would have very little in this life. Even the poorest people amongst our congregation this morning are wealthier than 99% of the people on the planet. We live in a very, very wealthy country. But have you ever stopped to consider that poverty can actually be a blessing? It can actually be a blessing that can cause you to take your eyes off of this life and to cause you to seek after eternal things. Now, poverty itself is not a virtue. Poverty itself is not a virtue. There are, are many wicked poor people, just as there are many wicked wealthy people. And there are also many righteous rich people, just as there are many righteous poor people. But those who are in need know they're in need materially, are often better positioned to know that they're also in need spiritually. God calls those poor people who love him rich. He calls them rich. They're rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now, of course, there's, there's not going to be any tears in heaven. There's not going to be any sadness. But I want to suggest this morning that heaven is going to be that much more heavenly to those who have suffered extensively in this life. That they're going to be even more thankful. Now, all of us are going to be eternally and supremely thankful in heaven. But I would argue that those who have faced poverty and persecution and all kinds of trials throughout their lives will, will actually be more grateful for the joys that they receive in heaven. Because in heaven, they're going to have treasure that will never corrode, that moth can never destroy, and thief can never steal. Next point in, in verse six and, verses 6 and 7. The rich judge you, but God's law judges the rich. It says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones those who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So while God honored the poor, these Christians were dishonoring them. The NIV is even stronger. It says you have insulted the poor. And the King James is even stronger. It said, it's stronger again and it's probably closer to the mark. They've actually oppressed the poor. The Septuagint describes the oppression of the poor. And Peter um, uses that, that same Hebrew word in the, the, in the Greek Old Testament to use the word, the word, the word here that's translated um, dishonor is actually stronger. It's actually for oppression. It's oppression. And what they were doing is that they were buying into the same system that the rich people were using to dishonor the poor people. They were doing the very same thing that had been done to them. And it was completely illogical. Peter David says they weren't simply dishonoring the poor, they were doing so in favor of the rich. This means that they were siding with the very class which both historically and at present persecutes the impoverished believer. They made the church into a tool of persecution. They have, in effect, sided with the devil against God. So James here asks three rhetorical questions, and each one of those could be answered with a yes. Yes. 
The questions were designed to help the church to see how foolish their judgment was. First, they were being exploited by the rich themselves. And Doug Moo here explains that, that in, in, the first century, in the first century Middle East, the minority were the, the wealthy landowners. And they were using the, the system to, to, to force the poor people into greater debt and forcing them off their land and grabbing more and more of their property and forcing the poor people to live in more abject poverty. So most of James's readers had probably faced that same plight. Many of them had probably been forced off their land by these wealthy merchants and wealthy landowners. As I said at the beginning, this letter was, was addressed to the diaspora, those who were the, the believing Jews who had been dispersed because of the persecution that was happening in Israel. So from that basis, it would not make any sense to be siding with the rich against the poor. You would have thought that it actually would have caused them to have more solidarity with the poor as they identified with them. But the second question is similar to the first. It deals with the way that the rich were dragging the poor Christians before the judges, and the rich would have been using their power and influence to cause the, the courts to ju make judgments against the poor people. And to a lesser extent, we see that in our culture as well, where, where those who are wealthy have a far greater chance to, to, to receive so-called justice than a poor, poor, poor person. There is no justice in a culture where somebody like O.J. Simpson can be called not guilty of murder when they had so much evidence against him. It's because he was wealthy and he could afford a good lawyer who could get him off. The third rhetorical questions, question brings the, the offense of the wealthy directly against the Lord himself. They were blaspheming the honorable name by which they had been called, by which Christians had been called. Now, obviously, this refers back to the name of Christ. The honorable name is that of Christ, the Lord of glory from verse 1. Now, we don't know exactly what James had in view here, but, but their blasphemy rendered them clearly guilty against God himself. So how then, how then could these Christians call somebody honorable who had been called dishonorable by God? And how could they call somebody dishonorable who had been called honorable by God? So for these people in verses 8 to 11, God's law judged them. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you commit murder, adultery, if you commit adultery but Sorry, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James explains that when these Christians were judging the poor by this, in this manner, they themselves were judged as guilty by God. It was a violation of the royal law. The royal law is also called the, the, the great commandment. It's cited from Leviticus 1918, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And the basis for neighbor love is love of God himself. Jesus showed this in Mark chapter 12 when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment or what is the most important commandment? He responded in verses 29 to 31, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. 
So Jesus here is tying love for God and love for neighbor together. And they actually form a summary of the Ten Commandments, where the first four essentially deal with, with God's with our relationship with God, even though the fourth commandment of the Sabbath is also a commandment that deals with, with men too. And the latter six, from the, so from the, the, the fifth on, deal with our relationship with each other. But any fracture of any of the commandments is actually sin against God himself. In Psalm 51, verse 4, when, when David was confessing his his adultery and his murder, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we need to see that when any time that we sin against another person, ultimately our sin is against God, and we, yes, we do not undermine the horizontal aspect of our sin, but is the, the vertical element that we also have to deal with. The issue of our guilt before God So breaking one commandment, even just once, would incur God's wrath. To break the law at any point makes you a lawbreaker. So if a murderer were to come before a judge and and say, well, okay, yeah, I killed the guy, but I never committed adultery, would that judge then have any reason to let that murderer go? No, because he is guilty of murder. And some people might be tempted to say, well, okay, well, well, that's murder. That's a serious sin. But all sin is serious because all sin comes out of a heart of rebellion against God. And murder is exactly what these Christians were doing. They were committing murder. By dishonoring the poor, they were committing murder in their hearts. James makes the point more explicit in in, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, when he condemns the, the wealthy oppressors by saying, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught that unrighteous anger amounted to murder in the heart. He said in verse 21 of chapter 5, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not... Just lost the last page of my sermon. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and everyone who says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So by insulting the poor people in this way, they were committing murder in their hearts, and they were condemned by God's law as guilty, as guilty. But, but, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, God has had mercy on you. God has had mercy on you, so you should be the first to pour out mercy on one another. We see that in verses 12 and 13. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy, or shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we need to remember that we are under the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom. If we have been set free in Christ, we are no longer condemned by God's law. Neither should we then condemn others. Neither should we then condemn others. We need to be able to to show mercy. You see, if you have been set free by Jesus Christ, you shall be free indeed. 
If the Holy Spirit is alive and well in you, you will show mercy because God is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You will increasingly look like Jesus because you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. But you see, those who are not showing mercy will not receive mercy. They have not received mercy. They have no hope of receiving the mercy of God because they don't know God's mercy. And that's evidenced by the fact that they're not showing it to others. So James again is showing that the people who judge in this way, who make their, this their lifestyle, they are characterized by this form of judgment, have not received the mercy of God. For mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy has triumphed over the judgment that is due us. And God's mercy also triumphs over inappropriate judgment that we are tempted to inflict on other people. So we need to pray that God would, would help us to grow in this, that it'll help us to, to strive to live by his standard. Gladly, joyfully pouring out mercy on other people as those who have received mercy ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you and we praise you for the mercy that you have poured out on us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you will help us not to judge according to the flesh, but to judge righteous judgment. Lord, that you will help us not to be hasty, but help us to look on the heart. Lord, I pray that you will help us to love others with the love that you have given us. They will help us to look for opportunities to die to ourselves, to look for opportunities to die for others. Lord, to to show the same type of love that Jesus Christ loved us with. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.